before I, um, well, while I was preparing, I was listening to Rowan's message last week. And I thought, um, I took Shannon away, so I needed to catch up. But I thought, what a brilliant way of introducing to us the difference between law and grace. And so that when we, as we journey through this book of Exodus, we understand that the law was never meant to, for us today, to try and follow to the, to the letter, because we can't. We cannot. We are fallen people. We are people who have, we are sinful. Anybody not sinful here? <laughs> okay, we're all together. But... But then comes the amazing grace of God. And as I look out and as I reflect on my own life, I think, wow, Lord, what am I even doing here? What am I even doing in this place, preaching your word to your people? What are we even doing, calling ourselves sons and daughters of, of Yahweh, the Most High God? It's the grace of God. It's the grace of God that passes our understanding. And draws us into a loving relationship. Our choruses this morning want to thank Tim and the team because it spoke all the key words this morning. Spoke about faithfulness. Spoke about compassion. Spoke about mercy. As we as we go into the Word of God this morning, I'm just hoping that I okay. I was hoping that wouldn't happen, but as we as we continue our journey through Exodus. I know that when we sing songs like, he led, he freed me from my Egypt and he led me through the wilderness, there's a tendency to, there's a tendency to spiritualize that, right? God has freed us from our slavery to sin and that's right and that's definitely right because that is what he has done. But I want to caution us not to spiritualize that too much. Because last week, Rowan also spoke about the existential realities that we find ourselves in. We look around and we still see slavery. We look around and we see xenophobia. We look around and we see that the image of God is marred in the lives of people on a daily, daily basis. And so before we as a church spiritualize everything so that it's great that we are the people of God and we are going to heaven, let us consider the existential reality. People exist in, in situations. And, and as we come to the word of God, this was the real life of the people of Israel. There's a, an author I'd like to just introduce today's message with. I love this woman when I read her work. You know, when you read something and, and the content kind of resonates, it just resonates. There's truth here. There's something here that I need to grab hold of. This author is Brené Brown, a professor of social science. I must just watch my time, people. A professor of social science, and she researches the dynamics of human relationships. Shame, empathy, vulnerability, and courage. In a groundbreaking book, Daring Greatly, she says that fundamentally as human, human beings, we were made for connection. We were made for relationship. God didn't create us to, 
to live lives that are isolated. We were made for this. We were made to, to be in relationship with other human beings and primarily with God himself. And so, when, when I read this book, Daring Greatly, I thought, wow, I love it when, when, when I don't want to call it secular because I don't want to make the distinction right, but I love it when that kind of research actually catches up to the Bible. Don't you just love that? Because who knows us better than the one who has created us? And so God knows what we are about. He sees us. He sees you. No one is invisible to this God that we serve. And no matter what we experience, this God desires to be a God who is in relationship with his people. The fury of your love. And so... This made me to think about our passage of Scripture today and to think about the elements of flourishing relationships. What does it take to be in a flourishing relationship? And the elements I'd like to touch on and to thread through the, the Scripture today as we reflect on Scripture in the Old Testament, look at how that plays out in the New Testament through the person of Jesus Christ and His disciples and apostles. And then eventually, how does that land for us today? In Cape Town, South Africa, in Kenilworth, as Balporto, as M5. How does that land for us today? So these are the elements. They are courage, the courage of vulnerability, emotional exposure, risk, uncertainty. And then there's fidelity. A, a flourishing relationship requires faithfulness, fidelity, isn't it? And, and what is that built upon? It's built upon a foundation of trust. And then finally, in any relationship, there's agency of those who are involved in the relationship. And what does that mean? It means that, that we are, as human beings, we have the capacity to make choices and to impose those choices on the world through self-reflection and through a sense of intentionality. So we reflect and we decide, I will do this. Just think about your relationships. They don't just happen by chance. It takes energy. It takes reflection. It takes like an intentionality of moving towards, isn't that? So if I think about just the relationships that, that God has blessed me with, there, there needs to be in any marriage relationship, so there's nothing... Risky coming. So it's just that <laughs> I can't expect Chantal to make all the advances towards me and I'm just passive. There needs to be an agency. So I need to exercise my agency and say, hey, wait a minute. It's our anniversary coming up, which I never forget, of course. And, and so then I need to do something. And then she does something. And then the relationship, there's something. And, 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 and we start to grow in our relationship. And so as we continue our journey through the Exodus sites into what do we take away? We take away our learnings about this relationship that God has with his people. It teaches about it teaches us about the nature of God, who is this God that we are serving? And it teaches us about our role in this relationship that we that we engage in. And so the portion of scripture I'd like you to turn to 
Um, our portion for today, as we consider this relational God that we serve, is Exodus 32 to 34. Those three chapters. But to appreciate the significance of, those, of these events, we, we first need to go to Exodus 24, and I'll read verse 1 and verse 8. Exodus 24 says, Then he said to Moses, Come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the seventy elders of Israel, and worship from afar. Then, in verse 8, as God establishes this covenant, and Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and the seventy elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And so what we see here is that God, God promises his faithfulness to his people, and in turn his people promise the, their obedience to him. And they say, we will obey the Lord our God. And so now you can turn your Bible to Exodus 32. And what, what do we see happening there? So after that time of just establishing the covenant with his people, what happens was Moses stays in the mountain for 40 days. And God very carefully details this covenant with Moses. He speaks about all the requirements of this covenant. The Ten Commandments are relayed to Moses. It's written on the tablets. And what we see is that um, he stays away for 40 days. So in chapter 32, what we see here is that from verse 1 to 6, um, while Moses is having this intensely spiritual experience with God and receiving all these instructions, Meanwhile, back at the camp, what happens is the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain. And the people gathered themselves together and said to Aaron, Up, make these gods, make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears, brought them to Aaron, and he received, them from, he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. So... Can you believe? I mean, Aaron makes the golden calf for the people, the idol worshippers in this time. How breathtakingly quickly don't they forget what God has done? We've just read in the preceding chapters that here's the God who delivers them out of Egypt. But how quickly they forget that he parted the Red Sea, that he led them through on dry ground and delivered them from the hand of, of the Egyptians. There's a theologian, Walter Brueggemann, who says, The idol worshippers may have imagined that they had arrived in the promised land, dancing around that God of self-assurance and affluence. In that moment when they needed to see their God, 
they called on Eden. And Eden, surprisingly, I'm just reflecting on this, that when, when God called Moses, Moses was the one that was hesitant, right? Moses was the one that was stammering and saying, God, but I can't speak and I'm, you know, I can't possibly do this. And then God says, yes, Aaron, he speaks well. Why don't you choose him? So Aaron is the smooth talker. But isn't it interesting that, that Moses, the one who seems like he cannot do this, who stammers and who, who kind of doubts himself, is the one who, who gets to know this God and has a powerful relationship with him. While Aaron so quickly molds a car for the people at their insistence and leads them in worshiping this God. So what happens then? We see in verse 7 to 14, the Lord expresses his desire to destroy the people. God says, quick, go down and see what these people have done. And I think we must read this because there's something very important for us to see in this relationship between Moses and God. From verse 7, he says, Go down for your people whom you brought out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now... Therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, that I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. I think it's very interesting that we see that God's anger burns against his people. And, and what happens in that, in that moment? I'm thinking if it was me, I would have said, okay, Lord, do what you need to do because he's God, right? He's, he's the one who... Who, who rules, he's, he's unchangeable. And so when he makes up his mind, he makes up his mind and that's it. But we see something very interesting in the word if we continue to read. We see that Moses pleads for the people. In verse 11, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit forever. And the Lord relented from this disaster. Don't you think that's very interesting? That God says, I want to destroy these people because they are sinful. Moses then puts himself in the gap and says, Lord, why do you want to destroy your people? These are your people that you delivered. Do you want us to be a laughing stock among the nations? And in that moment, we see that Moses almost issues imperatives. He says, be merciful to them. Like, you know, save them. And, and verse 14 says, God relents. I think the amazing thing is that what we learn about this relationship is that the God we serve is a relational God. And our, and our relationship with him is a dynamic relationship. It's a dynamic relationship. 
So we may have this image of a, a God who is, who is set in stone, who is just like there and, and, and you know, but he, he will be true to his nature, but he's open to his people to engage with him in a very dynamic relationship. I think that is very interesting. So we see Moses coming down from the mountain, and what is Moses' what is Moses's response? As he almost appeases God and he comes down the mountain, verse 15 to 29 says, Moses comes and his anger, his anger now burns against the people, and he breaks the, the tablets of the, the terms of the covenant. This symbolizes the breaking of the covenant. So no sooner had the covenant been established than it was now broken because of the disobedience of the people. And so Moses questions Aaron, right? And what does Aaron say? Aaron says, you know how evil these people are. All I did was say, say, give me your earrings. I threw it into the fire and out came this calf. Isn't that amazing? Like, I had nothing to do with this. It's these people. I just threw the gold into and out came. But there was something. There was like an intentionality around this disobedience because they actually had to mold the calf. It was probably gold-plated. So there was a lot of intentionality going into this. And, and then Moses comes to the people, and, and what he does is very interesting. And, and there are some parts in the, in the Bible that I, I just can't explain because... What then happens is Moses comes and he burns the, the idol to show them, look at this God of yours. I can, I can act against this God. I can destroy this God with no repercussions because this is not a God. And he burns the God and he makes them drink it. He puts the, the, the gold and the, the ash because it's probably a, a wooden structure. He throws it into the water and he makes them drink it. Why? Because there will be consequences for your sin. And I can imagine this must have made them very sick and they were retching and, and, so, and so they needed to face the consequences of their sin. But Moses goes back to God in, in chapter 32, verse 31 to 32. He says, Moses intercedes for the people to the extent where he says, Lord, if you won't go with this people or if you won't forgive this people, he, he, has, he has secured the appeasement of God's anger, but now he's asking for God for forgiveness of the people. And he says, if you won't forgive, may my name be blotted out. And so in this moment, we see Moses' commitment to the people. And we see Moses almost taking on this type of Christ who is willing to sacrifice his very own life for the sake of the people. And... What then, what then ensues in chapter 33 is this intense intimacy of the relationship between Moses and God. We see that, that God says, um, I, will not, I will not blot out your name, but I will blot out the names of all of those who are guilty. And then, and then Moses comes back and he says, and God says, take these people up to the promised land. I will not go with you because... If I, if I travel with them, even for a little while, my anger will overtake me and I will destroy them. Once again, we see that later on in that very chapter, Moses says, Lord, unless your presence goes with us, we will not leave this place. And I think as a church, as people of God, there's a sense where we are saying, 
in this time that, Lord, unless you go with us, we will not leave this place. And we see that God relents. God says to to Moses, he says, Moses, I will go with you. In in chapter 34, we see the covenant is renewed. God, God renews the tablets. He writes on the tablets, he tells Moses, just uh, you out new tablets and I will write the, the, the terms of the covenant once again on these tablets. And in this act, we see that God renews the covenant with his people despite their unfaithfulness. God remains faithful even though his people are unfaithful. This picture, the, the picture of the relationship between Moses and God is so dynamic. It says that Moses is able to engage with God, is able to um, relate to God, and God listens to Moses. And, and what courage and vulnerability Moses displays in this, in, this, in this relationship. We see the radical faithfulness of God. Even though his people have broken the covenant, God remains faithful. He declares his compassion and his mercy in chapter 34. We read about God's faithfulness to his people. This reminds me of, um, have you guys watched um, C.S. Lewis's uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, The Chronicles of Narnia, where there's an exchange between Susan and Mr. Beaver and and they speak about Aslan, Aslan as the lion. And, and so Susan says, Aslan is a lion. The lion, the great lion, says Mr. Beaver. Ooh, says Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Because he, of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. And there's something in that that captures the essence of this God that we serve. He's a God with a fierce love for his people. He's a God who showed his fury at, 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 at the Pharaoh, who, who oppressed his people so much. But he's a God who is faithful and compassionate and merciful at the same time. As we look at these events in the life of the people of Israel, I'd like to draw out some insights for us. What does this mean for our relationship? As God's people, we are called into relationship with God. That is, our, that is a vertical dynamic. But we are also called into relationship with each other and with our society, with, with, with the world that we live in. And this even extends to our natural world. This week, um, our leaders were meeting in, in Glasgow uh, for the COP26 talks about climate change. And so you may think, now, what has that got to do with me? And actually, it has so much to do with us as God's people. So when we look at our relationship with God and we consider the, the unfaithfulness of His people turning to, turning to a, a golden calf, to worship a golden calf, you wonder, Lord, what is that all about? Does that have any significance for me? Can you turn your Bible to Exodus chapter 6, verse 6 to 9? What would cause these people to so quickly 
disobey the covenant and turn their backs on this God who saved them from such misery and slavery. And I think there's some insight here for us because our relationship with God speaks to our identity in Christ. And our identity influences how we engage with the world. If I'm not sure about my identity, I'm unsure how to engage with the world around me because I'm not sure of who I am. And so we see in in, in Exodus chapter 6, verse 6 to 9, Say therefore, the Lord says to Moses, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and I will deliver you from slavery to them. And I will redeem you with outstretched arms and with great acts of judgment. I will take I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out of the, from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. So what a reassuring, what a powerful message. Moses then goes to the people of Israel. He speaks these words to them. But the word says, Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses. Why? Because their broken spirit, because of the harsh slavery. So we see that the people of Israel had their spirits broken because of the harshness of the slavery. I think it's uh, Steve Biko who said, the most powerful weapon in the hands of the oppressor is the mind of the oppressed. People, there's a dynamic here that I, I don't want us to, to miss as we, as we look at this relationship with God and, and the identity that we derive from this. Imagine the people of Israel are suffering under, under the, the slavery and under the harshness of the slavery. And, and, and Pharaoh is saying, um, that make, make more bricks with less. I'm not giving you straw. And so they, they then complain about Moses, who's come to actually deliver them. They complain to Moses, and they say, what have you done? You've done this evil to us. Because Pharaoh is even more angry with us now. And so do you see their short-sightedness of comfort in the face of God's ultimate liberation? And so... And so this is what oppression can do. It can mess with our sense of identity. It can, it can mar a sense of who we are. And I, and I think this is what has happened to the people of Israel in that desert when Moses wasn't there as the figure of the one leading them. They started to doubt who they were. What are we doing here? Who's leading us? And so they say to Aaron... Make us a God that we can follow because they doubted their identity. God says, you are my people, but they doubted who they were. And in that moment, they chose to look to a a golden calf. Before we are too harsh on the people of Israel and we look at them and say, are these people missing some like crucial like, 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 what's wrong with him? God has done this amazing work. And we, of, of course, in hindsight, you can say that. I think it's important for us to realize that 
How many times in our lives don't we allow other voices to speak into our identity? Which are those voices that speak into our identity as the people of God? Do we allow do we do, do we allow our racist policies to divide us and to tell us that you you are more valuable than than these people over here and so don't worry how you treat them actually these are actually less than human just go ahead and so we forget our identity as human beings in the sight of God loved by the person of God I love what first Peter chapter 2 says in verse 9 and 10 as we come into the New Testament first Peter You can turn there. First Peter chapter two, verse nine and ten says, "But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for His own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received." mercy the word of god gives us an identity m5 god the word of god calls us and says you are the people of god people have looked at us and looked at us and said no but these people are are not a people but god's word comes and he and and it says you once were not a people are now the people of god this is our identity he goes on then to speak into the practical lives of the people. He speaks to slaves, he speaks to wives, he speaks to all Christians because at that time they were suffering under Roman oppression. Our identity in God and our work towards the reign of God is to be embodied in our daily lives. And so this is why in our relationship with God we we need to be careful not to, not to put it into a spiritual realm that, that, that is separated from our daily experience. So, in Deuteronomy 28, verse 2 to 6, the Word of God says that if you obey the covenant, then you will be blessed in your fields. You will be blessed in your, in your daily lives, whatever you are doing, when you are cooking and when you are raising your children. And so it enters the material experience of our lives. And so as people, our identity in God and our relationship with God needs to lead us to understand what God is calling us to. Nancy Piercy warns against the separation of the sacred and the secular, the public and the private, because Jesus in our hearts quickly becomes Jesus in our minds and in our private space and not Jesus in the public sphere. If we turn to Matthew chapter 22, verse 37 to 40, Jesus replied, what is the greatest commandment? They asked him. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment and the second is like, like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. While our relationship with, with God speaks to our identity as people, we are called to be in relationship with our neighbor. And this calls for inclusivity into the family of God. So what does this look like in our relationship with the other 
in the person of Jesus Christ, if we just think about this morning, Steve read a verse that said, God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in the person of Jesus Christ. What does this mean? It means that when God came to us in the person of Jesus Christ, we see God's radical commitment to his covenantal relationship. He presences himself physically. God comes to us and he lives amongst us. He liberates the oppressed and he gives his very life for reconciliation. I'm reminded when Jesus enters the temple, he expresses his anger at the exploitation of the people for financial gain. And the religious charade by overturning the tables in the temple. And so this outward show of religiosity, Jesus says, this, this, has come, this needs to come to an end. And he turns over the tables and he then goes on and he says, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations, Isaiah 56. There's something in the relationality of God that, that models for us as human beings what it means to be in relationship with each other. How do we see the other? You know, this golden calf that the people of Israel worshipped. In that moment in the wilderness, they were dancing around this golden calf, maybe thinking that, that they have arrived in this promised land. They're out of slavery and they arrived in this in this promised land, but what we see is, is a group of people dancing around an idol, around a God of self-assurance and a God of affluence. The calf symbolizes fertility, virility. It, it, the, the gold of, of the calf symbolizes affluence. How easy is it for us today to, to, to be caught up into the world system to say that all we need to do, the point of our lives, is to, is to chase this capitalist dream of acquiring more and more to ourselves. While we, while we sing songs that say that, that great is your faithfulness to me, Lord, just to me, I'm so glad you love me, I'm your child, while when I go to my life on a Monday, I, I find myself chasing this dream of, of a bigger house, of more cars, more, 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 more for me, this, this dream of accumulation. Doesn't it amount to the same thing as, as worshipping a calf in the wilderness? Where you think you've arrived in the promised land, but actually you're still in the wilderness. And God has so much more for us in store. And he's a God who desires relationship on a daily basis with us because he wants to speak into our lives. He wants us to speak to him. He wants to generate an intimacy and cultivate an intimacy with us. As I reflect on this, on this passage of Scripture, every now and again, what do you see? You see Moses and you see Joshua. And so there's something of an intergenerational kind of legacy that needs to be passed on. And as I come to an end, I s the last thought is that God is calling us. He, God is calling his people for a purpose um, to form a new community, a community who is his very own, a, a community who will look at their lives differently, a community who will courageously stand in the breach working with him to bring in his kingdom in the world. What does this require of us? 
It requires new imagination. What hope can we look at our world? What hope can we, can we see beyond the wilderness? It requires new policies. It requires new practices. God is calling us into the creation of a new humanity who serves him primarily. We find our identity in Jesus Christ. We are radically inclusive because God's love is for all. M5, God declares to us this morning that once you had no identity as a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received the mercy of God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word which speaks powerfully to us. Father, as we reflect on your people in the wilderness and Father, I pray that we would reflect on, on our lives and, and Father, look, at, look around us and, and, and look into our world and in spaces and places where people need to be delivered from real oppression. Father, we are your people. We are your new community, Father God. Father, we pray that our minds would be transformed, that we would participate with, with gladness and with freedom in this new community. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Brandon, for that. Thanks for bringing the word um, and uh, preaching such a powerful message. Thanks so much for that.